I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Lord God, these words are all too familiar to those of us who have been in church for years. Yet we pray that this morning you would enable us, each of us, to believe it, to understand it, and to live in the joy and the satisfaction it brings. Amen. Well, I am not much of a theatre-goer, but Ellie and I were given a ticket to a picture of Dorian Gray by our, my parents-in-law. And I have to say, this play by the raconteur and wit Oscar Wilde was absolutely brilliant. If you haven't seen it, I don't know if there are still tickets available. Somebody in this congregation, who I won't name, told me it was the best thing that she had ever seen, or I heard that secondhand. I didn't believe it. I thought it was was exaggeration, but really it wasn't. This is not actually a plug for the show. It's going somewhere, but it is really quite brilliant. This one lady whose name I don't know, she's not yet famous, she will be, plays every single part for two hours straight. It's an extraordinary... For every moment that I was awake, it was brilliant. In the play, there is a line which I really enjoyed. It is, of course, typical Oscar Wilde. He said, as long as a woman can look 10 years younger than her daughter, she is perfectly satisfied. A little bit more seriously, he said this, there are only two tragedies in life. One is not getting what one wants. The other is getting it. Satisfaction is the subject of our passage this morning. And satisfaction is what our world is seeking, and satisfaction is what our world cannot get. J.D. Rockefeller, very famous U.S. businessman, 1916 was the first ever U.S. dollar billionaire. He died in 1937, and his wealth at that time was the equivalent of 1.5% of the total U.S. GDP. That would be $17 billion in today's terms. And many of you will already know his famous answer to the question, how much money does it take to make a man happy, Mr. Rockefeller? Answer, just one more dollar. All the world in the, all the money in the world will not satisfy, and we know that. The great preacher Spurgeon said to a congregation member, you say, If I had a little bit more, I should be very satisfied. But you make a mistake. If you are not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. Or perhaps the famous thought leader and philosopher of the 20th century, Mick Jagger. I can't get no satisfaction. What is it that gives us the satisfaction that we so clearly want and need as human beings? Well, Jesus gives us the answer here in this passage, and the key text is there on his lips in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I'm sure that like me, for many of us, these words are familiar, perhaps too familiar, but they are profound words. And the Lord Jesus' aim for us this morning as we come to these words again is that we would in fact believe what he says. That in him, 
and him alone, we find true satisfaction, true life, life which isn't only for this world, but life that we were designed for, that lasts into eternity, life which is relationship with our creator, life which is satisfaction, meaning and purpose, purpose whose opposite is only death and starvation and purposelessness. What will give us the satisfaction that we so want and need? Answer, point one, not this life's bread, but the bread of life. Not this life's bread, but the bread of life. If you were with us last week, you'll remember where we were in chapter five. We were in the temple in Jerusalem, in the capital of the religious body of Israel. The Jewish leaders, we remember, far from accepting Jesus as Messiah, which was so clearly the case, rather than receiving his word that he was, in fact, the son from the father, as so clearly demonstrated in all of his actions and his teaching, want to kill him. They hate him because he's doing work on the Sabbath, what the Lord God alone can do. And because he is calling God his father, making himself equal with God. But as we'll remember, far from backing down, Jesus doubles down and he opens up a court case. To begin with, he's in the defense and he brings three key witnesses to prove that his claim is entirely and utterly trustworthy. Evidence one, or witness number one, was John the Baptist, the great prophet of the Old Testament, who said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world this man who so clearly had turned the world upside down, who so clearly was a prophet of God, said that Jesus is the one to come. There was John the Baptist. Then there was the evidence of Jesus' own works, the way that he, with just a word, had healed that man who was laying there for 38 years beside that pool, a picture of despair and hopelessness, but with a word had given him life. And then the ultimate witness, the Father himself, that mind shift of what the scriptures is all about. It is the testimony of God the Father for generation upon generation preparing the way for the coming of his son. It is crystal clear who Jesus is. And he said in verse 24, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. But they would not receive him and they did not accept him because they wanted the glory that comes from man and not the glory that comes from God. That was last week, but now we are back up in the north in Galilee, Jesus' home territory in verse 1. And this passage is made up of four different scenes. I wonder if you'd follow with me as we track it through. Scene 1 takes verses 1 to 15. We're on the eastern bank, verse 1, of the Sea of Galilee, the opposite side to the more populated area. We're in a desert kind of territory, opposite to Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine, opposite to Capernaum, where he will travel by the end of this chapter. And here in verses 1 to 15, he is followed by, any measure, an enormous crowd. We read that the crowd is of 5,000 men, but when you count women and children, that would be 20,000. I tried to think about it in local terms. It would fill all of North Sydney Stadium, or rather Oval, with all of the seats, but also people sitting on the grounds 
as well. This is a huge crowd, especially for that time. And they followed him all the way out into this unpopulated desert area. In verse 5, Jesus is up the mountain with his disciples, but he looks up and he sees the crowd surging towards him, coming towards him, hungry, no doubt, from a day of travel. And in verse 6, Jesus knows what he is about to do. He calls over local boy Philip, Philip from Bethsaida, and he says, Philip, uh, where could we find a place, a local IGA perhaps, where we could feed people who are so hungry? Philip's answer in a loose translation is, you are crazy. I mean, even 200 denarii, which is perhaps $50,000, wouldn't be able to feed all these guys with a slice of bread only each. Andrew pipes up in verse 8. He says, oh, look over there. There's a boy with five loaves of barley and a couple of fish. Um, But in an act of genius, he admits that that's not enough for so many people. Verse 10, Jesus has them all sitting down on a grassy area. He gives thanks and he has that fish and bread, as we well know, passed around such that it doesn't just provide a bit, they are overfull and there are leftovers, 12 baskets full. Scene 2 takes us to verse 16, 16 to 21. And now this is the sea, the Sea of Galilee itself. In verse 16, the disciples have made their way down to the beachside where the boat is and they get into the boat and begin rowing to the other side, to Capernaum, which is a a number of miles away. By verse 18, it is already pitch black. The wind is howling. The sea is churning. They are terrified, even though they are experienced fishermen, because, well, Jesus is walking beside them on the sea, though they do not realize it. To calm their fears, he announces himself. He says, I am. Do not fear. He's taken into the boat. And as they do, verse 21, all of a sudden they find themselves on the other side. Scene 1, scene 2, scene 3 begins in verse 22 and ends in verse 24. It's the next day now. The sun is up and the crowd wakes up and they go down to the boat, but it's gone. And the disciples are gone too. And they knew that Jesus didn't enter the boat with the disciples, yet Jesus is no longer there. In verse 23, a flotilla of other boats from an area called Tiberias, which is in the southwest, have made the huge journey to try and find Jesus because they've heard about his miraculous feeding. They want a feed too. In verse 24, the whole crowd, no doubt having conferred, The original and the newcomers all now hop in a boat in hot pursuit of Jesus, the great feeder of people, and they head to Capernaum, where he almost certainly is. That takes us to scene 4, verse 25, which goes to the end of our passage, verse 40. And we are now in Capernaum, that busy city. In verse 59, don't turn to it, we learn they're actually in the synagogue. That's where they've tracked Jesus down to, where presumably he is teaching And in verse 26, Jesus sees through into their hearts as he does and he notices and knows their motivation. Why have they put so much effort traversing the whole country, going walkabout in the desert, jumping upon boat after boat to track down Jesus? They're not actually seeking him, they want food. Look with me to the verse, truly Truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, 
not because you saw signs that is revealing his identity, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Just as a momentary sidebar, there is that kind of false Christianity, isn't there? The kind of Christianity which is the feeding Christianity. That kind of Christianity that treats Jesus like a slot machine, that Jesus is a divine being who dispenses the things that we want in this world. A Christianity that demands gifts, but in the end doesn't have much interest in the giver. That isn't the seeking that Jesus, that, what, that finds the real Jesus. That kind of seeking is empty. It's not a saving seeking. It's not a satisfying seeking. Now, the seeking Jesus wants is a different type of seeking. We'll think more about that in a moment. Now, these, these people, they want more bread. They want their bellies to be full. And the difficulty for us is that here in Australia, bread is so abundant, whether it's sourdough or uh, sliced white in the supermarket. It's something that is on tap all the time. But, of course, that wasn't the case in the first century. People would pray for their daily bread because their daily bread was a necessity. Each day you would go out and buy from the wages of the day before. And these people desperately needed that bread. They were right, profoundly right in one sense, in seeking Jesus, for they were seeking someone who could provide them with that physical bread. And they are seeking him earnestly. Verse 24, they seek him. And verse 25, they are seeking. And in verse 30, they ask for a sign to see and believe. They are really seeking in one sense, but then again, they're not. They're blind to who Jesus is. They see him as a prophet earlier in the passage. Verse 14, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world a miracle worker, a bit like Moses, on behalf of God, not God himself, defeating the enemies of God's people and providing them with what they want. They see him as a king, a merely human king. In the next verse, verse 15, one who would come and overthrow the Romans once and for all so that they could have bread in abundance without the pressures of an oppressive ruling regime. And in verse 30, they ask for a sign, which I don't know about you, but is really quite extraordinary because they've had a pretty good sign just a few verses ago. Jesus feeding 20,000 people from five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. But again, their words reveal the reality. They're not actually interested in a sign pointing to who Jesus is so that they would believe in him, they're thinking with their stomachs, thinking only with the eyes of this world. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. I think what is going on there is them revealing what they actually want. They're blind to the spiritual reality. What they're looking for is more manna, more physical bread to fill their stomachs. Verse 27, they only see 
according to the ways of this world and not eternal realities. Verse 27, Jesus says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, that is Jesus, will give to you. And this is where we need to zero in. Jesus says, do not labor, do not work for the food that perishes. That is the kind of bread that those people were seeking. All that belongs just to this world that we think will bring us satisfaction. Instead, labor for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, which Jesus himself alone can give you. And Jesus has already for us demonstrated that that's true. He is the one who can give lasting life, the bread that goes beyond this world, the things that take us from this world into eternity, true eternal life. And that is because in those first two scenes, he so clearly demonstrates that he is the Lord. The Exodus rescue of Israel from Egypt into the promised land was a picture of the ultimate rescue to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we don't have a Moses figure, just a prophet, but we have the Lord himself who has stepped into history to feed his people in the wilderness with everlasting bread to take them from this world into eternal life, out of the world under judgment and into a world of resurrection joy. And scene one showed us that, scene two showed us that. Did you notice what Jesus said in verse 20? It is I, or in other words, I am God's own name, as he announced it in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus doing what God alone could do, calming the wind and the waves, walking on top of the sea because he himself had created it. Of course, What Jesus says here is true. Jesus can give us the food that endures to eternal life. He can give us what we actually need. He can give us what satisfies because he is the Lord of life. Or as he puts it in our key verse, verse 32, he and he alone is the bread of life. I am the bread of life, verse 35 rather, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Or verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my gives you the true bread from heaven. And that true bread from heaven is he himself. I wonder if you will permit another quote. C.S. Lewis said this famously, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, this probably, the, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only arouse it to suggest the real thing. And that is what Jesus is saying to us this morning that the desires that we have that want satisfaction find their satisfaction only in one place, and that is in him, 
the bread of life. For those original readers back then, under the pressure of a powerful and impressive Jewish elite, many of them from a Jewish background, undoubtedly they were tempted to go back on this following of the Lord Jesus as they were under attack. But Jesus here is reminding them that they have the real thing. They don't rely on the shadows and the pictures that were pointing forward to the reality. In him, they have found real satisfaction. And you can see the obvious connections to us today. So easy for us to look outside and envy those around us and to think that in what they have, what they're seeking, there is real satisfaction. But Jesus tells us there is not. That is the bread that perishes, that will not last, that will not give us satisfaction, that will not give us life, that will take us from this world and sustain us into the world to come. Don't seek it. I don't know if you're like me, but it's so easy for us in our hearts to seek after those things, the bread which perishes, whether it's just raw mammon, money, or some experience, or a particular relationship, or an achievement in life. It's like the person who has a great big castle behind them that belongs to them, but they're blind to, and instead is focusing all of their time making a mud hut that they want to live in. I won't embarrass her, but I was brought up by a tiger mother. She's here this morning, I think. And those of us who are brought up by tiger mothers, we don't blame them, it's our own fault, do sometimes have the tendency to seek achievement in our lives, even perversely in Christian ministry. It's possible to seek satisfaction in that. How twisted our hearts are. But Jesus says no to that. It doesn't matter how many A-pluses you get in your music exams or what score you get in your HSC or your university, even if you become a doctor. None of these things in this life will ultimately satisfy. Now only coming to the Lord Jesus, the true bread who feeds us now and keeps us for eternal life. And the opposite, which Jesus makes clear in this gospel, is starvation and death. And finally, judgment that is coming to all who have not fed on him and the bread that he offers. What gives us satisfaction that we so desperately want and need? Not the bread of this life, but the bread of life, Jesus himself. We could finish there, but just for a few minutes, I want to take us to a second theme that comes up in this passage. And the question is this, if Jesus is the bread of life, well, how do we get him? How do we get that bread? Well, the answer is not by doing, but by depending on him. Not by doing, but by depending on him. Look with me, please, as we draw to close to verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? You see, these people were good Jewish Jews. They had followed the law of Moses, or as it was misunderstood. They had begun to do the works. They'd lived a whole life of religious works in order to get the eternal life that they thought that they could achieve by keeping the law of Moses. And now they're asking their new guru, what work do you want us to do? What law keeping do you want us to keep? 
That is the way of the Old Testament religion. But that is the way also of this world, a world in which what you do gives you the outcome that you deserve. And that's appropriate and right insofar as we live in this world and for the things of this world. But that is not how it works in the economy of God, in spiritual and ultimate realities. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. See, this is the thing. There is nothing that we can do. There is no work that we can achieve to earn the eternal life that will only satisfy, to give us Jesus. No, rather than doing, the only way, the only means is receiving, depending, not doing, depending on him. You can see it there in verse 34, again, our key verse I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How do we get this eternal life? Well, it's there twice in that passage, by believing in him. That is the opposite of working. It is depending, relying, trusting, opening the hand, receiving Jesus and the life that he offers. John explains it in another way, not just believing, but coming to him coming to him empty-handed, coming to him at your wit's end, coming to him recognizing that you have nothing and no resources in yourself, spiritually speaking. You are under the judgment and rightly because of the way you have lived in God's world without reference to him. Believe in him and come to him for the grace that he promises. Believe, come, and then one more word that Jesus uses to help us understand the way to receive him, and that is there in verse 40. Verse 40, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is deliberately alluding to the raising up of the bronze serpent in Numbers, Numbers chapter 21. When the people of Israel were poisoned, an expression of God's wrath, they were under judgment, they were all going to die, but God provided a substitute, a bronze snake that was lifted up. And as they simply looked to that snake, they were healed, if they chose to do so. Nothing in themselves but looking upon the substitute God had provided. And Jesus himself, back in chapter 3, likens himself to that snake, the one who is lifted up first on the cross, and on the cross bearing the wrath, the judgment, the poison that we each deserve. And as one looks to him, depends on him, and trusts in him, we are healed of all our sins, past, present, and future. That is what it is to believe in him, to come to him. It is to look to him. And then lifted up, not just on the cross, but one day in resurrection power, as he is now, as he will come one day to return in judgment against the whole world, but receive those into his eternal kingdom without judgment and into life because of his death and resurrection. And that is the magnificent news 
of the Christian gospel. I had the great privilege of speaking to one of you last week after the morning meeting. And this dear brother explained to me how for, and I hope he won't mind, but for a number of years he used to work just down one of the streets here, occasionally popped his head in to see what was happening, began reading philosophy, eventually ended up reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And one day after a great personal difficulty in his family, found himself on the internet googling, how do I come to know Jesus? And he prayed a prayer, and he describes to me that he felt a great burden lifting. And that was the burden of his sin. And from that moment on, the life of Jesus entered his heart, and he was alive from then, is alive today, and will be alive for eternal life. And that is what Jesus is able to do and does do, which means that now we can relax because we don't have to work for our salvation. Jesus has done it. We cannot be lost from our salvation. Wonderful words in verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Do you ever doubt that you'll make it in the end because of your sins? I do. But Jesus says you will never be cast out. Or again, the Father's own words. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, that is nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. If you're worried that your sins will count you out, well, you've got the will of God countering that. And he will not, and he cannot allow you to be lost. What a privilege it is this morning to be those who are Christian people. What an opportunity for those of us who aren't yet. It isn't about our works, anything we do. No, we rest in the wonderful truth that we have eternal life, bread that satisfies beyond this world and into eternity. And we can be absolutely guaranteed that is the case because it is guaranteed by the one who has risen again and by the Father who has sent him. We pray together. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We thank and praise you, our Father in heaven, that Jesus is indeed the bread of life, that he offers us satisfaction, he offers us nourishment that we each so desperately need. Thank you that because of him we are saved from the judgment day and that the life we have now will last into eternity. And we ask that we wouldn't chase after the bread that perishes but be focused and invest and rejoice in the bread that lasts. We ask it for his glory's sake. Amen.